so it's a crapshoot when it comes to how you, yeah, you know, what what happens in the NFL because it's so determined on where you go, it's so determined on what system you're in, and if you don't go to the right system and the right situation, it's hard for anyone to succeed. That's why I was like, <laughs> I like wiped my brow and and said thank you, Cleveland, for not drafting Sam Darnold because I think he's got a <laughs> He's got a better chance to succeed at the Jets than he does at Cleveland. Welcome to Ballers with Babies. I'm Mark Willard. Today we know so much about what athletes and sports personalities do, but not so much about who they are, what makes them tick. What's life like the moment the stadiums and TV cameras go dark? Most go home to their families. We want to know what that after-hours experience is like. Ballers with Babies explores their upbringing, their home life, how it's affected by their high-profile job, and how that high-profile job is affected by the home life. On Ballers with Babies, we talk to some of the most interesting names in sports and find out how they're even more interesting than we realize. And don't worry, diehard fan, we'll get to the important sports questions as well. This is your favorite people like you've never heard them before. I hope you enjoy. All right, let's get him in here on Ballers with Babies. You know him for football, maybe you know him for broadcasting, maybe starring in reality shows on TV, all all of the different things in life. Right now, Rodney, what are you what are you getting recognized most for these days? <laughs> uh, I'm I'm getting recognized for being Holly Robinson, Pete's husband. <laughs> that's, my, that's my deal. All right, well, that's my deal, man. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I'm 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 all I'm all for that. That's okay with me. I I, I bet. All right, so let's hear about the uh, the family, as you mentioned, Holly Robinson, Pete. You guys have four kids. What are their names and ages? Yeah, we have four kids. I've got uh, twins that are now 20. Um, I got a daughter who's in her second year at NYU um, named Ryan. And then I've got a son who's 20 as well, her twin brother, who is working in the clubhouse for the Dodgers. So he's got his own gig, which is great. Um, and then I've got a 15-year-old boy and a 13-year-old and a boy. And they both are attend. Uh, one's in uh, seventh grade. One's in ninth grade at Sierra Canyon um, Middle School and High School in Chatsworth. I and you guys have athleticism all over the family, right? Cousin Calvin Pete was a golfer. Your dad, your brother, have always been involved in coaching and sports. I wonder when there are families like that. Is that the result of just athletic genes, or in families like yours? Is there something else to that, an extra focus on sports or a culture that leads to it? Well, I mean, for us, at least for my brother and I, I was um, I grew up with just one older brother, and you mentioned him. He's now the uh, running backs coach for the Rams. But um, my dad was a, a football coach for a long time, played in college, um, uh, got hurt in college, so didn't get a chance to go forward. But uh, end up becoming a uh, an assistant coach at the University of Arizona, um, U of A, which I grew up in Tucson. So uh, he was there for 20 years, and and so my brother and I grew up playing, you know, all all sports. And I followed his lead, man. He was three years older than me, and I followed his lead. And and uh, he was a, a very good athlete. And you know, as a younger brother, you try to beat your older brother, and that <laughs> kind of propelled me. To, um, to be as good as I am because he let me kind of tag along with him and compete against him and his friends, and that made me better. 
and um, eventually I was able to go to USC and and uh, and and then go on to the NFL. So, um, but it was a competitive atmosphere at home with me and my brother and my dad being a coach. He gave us access. That was a big thing, Mark. I mean, he gave us access to the environment. He gave us access to like the culture of what it was like and what it took. So we would go to training camp with the with the college with the University of Arizona. We get to know the players and knew how hard they worked. Um, and so it was the access, understanding where, you know, what it took to get there. And that kind of propelled me to understand at a young age that I needed to work hard to get where I wanted to go. And, and, um, it was a, it was just a perfect situation for me. And have you kind of created that same atmosphere in your house? Are there more athletes coming something? And, and this is just a, an outward perception, but something tells me that Holly, uh, maybe not as much into the creating a competitive environment as maybe where you grew up. You tell me. Yeah, it's a little bit different. I mean, her her business. She, she grew up. Her mom was on TV. Her dad was um, a, a tremendous writer. He has since passed away. Passed away from Parkinson's um, fifteen years ago. And but he was a uh, he was an actor and a writer. He was the original Gordon on Sesame Street. So. Very, very similar disciplines in terms of of just being disciplined and and creative in your craft and understanding the nuances of your craft. So it was a good fit when we got together, but but very competitive as well. So she brought that competitive spirit as as, as well as I did, um, just from a different genre and and not necessarily from athletics, but from an entertainment standpoint. Standpoint, she um. She was. She had to compete. She had to compete with other other actors out there, and um, but she was given the opportunity of being in an environment of understanding what it took. So we try to lend it our, you know, to our kids. And you know, as you get to this day and age, you don't want, you know, the the thing that my dad never did um, was he never pushed us to do it. We was always, you know, we wanted to learn more. We wanted to be a part of it. We wanted to to go to practice with him, and uh, he was always like, if you got. If you guys want to go, you can come, but you know you don't have to. <laughs> and we always wanted to, and that's the kind of the way I've I've kind of raised my kids. My two younger ones are very athletic, um, and uh, you know very involved in sports. And so um, I just try to be there for them. And if they need support and they need help, then I'm going to give them all the support that they can. But I'm not trying to push them one way or another. Look, both of them are playing the sports that I did not play. My younger one is a basketball kid and loves to play basketball. And my um, my 15 year old is a tremendous baseball player. So, uh, which I did play, but I didn't play professionally. But um, so I'm I'm there for them. I don't push them in one way or another. But uh, they know they have the support of us. And you guys have had the TV shows. What what is it like to have cameras following you and your kids? Um, you know, for me, it was it was uh, it was a it was a little bit of a shock, but. You know, for Holly, she's she's been in the business for a long time, so she understood it. Um, but we we felt that being able to document, you know, the the goings on with our family, and given where society is to now, to, to try to create some positive influence in terms of family and and raising kids and relationships and a lot of relationships. Especially, we live in L.A., so a lot of relationships in L.A. don't work out but trying to figure out and make it, make it work and show people how it can work um, was important to us. And then we got, 
you know, our diagnosis with our son, um, who's one of the twins, who's 20 now, at three years old, that he had autism, um, and that changed our lives. And so from that standpoint, for, for three or four years, we dealt with just getting him, getting him the proper treatment that he deserved and needed. And then after a while, we like, this is working for him, so we need to share our story. So we started talking about him having autism and what that means and early, early diagnosis and treatments and getting to the right schools and getting the right help around you and creating a team around the kids. So we started talking about that, and, was, and we, had, we had a tremendous response from that. And so henceforth to the, uh, to the reality show, um, it was chronicling our family about our journey, not only with my son, which is a big part of it, but just as a African-American family dealing with four kids and a, and a, and a, and a son with special needs, um, we, we felt it was compelling. So Holly pitched it, and, and people bought it, and they loved it. And so now uh, we're fortunate enough to be on the Hallmark Channel uh, sharing our story and never alive. But it's not easy having you know, cameras in your house every single day. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the tough part about it. But the good part is that it was not like, you know, real housewives or, <laughs> or the real world or anything like that, that, you know, you wake up and there's a camera in your face. We kind of script the reality. Um, not that it's, uh, you know, it's all scripted, but we talk about subjects that we want to talk about and the cameras roll, but they're not, you know, they're not in, a, in our, in our face when we wake up in the morning. They allow us to kind of get dressed and go forward. And then we talk about subjects that we want to talk about. And then they say, okay, you know, we're going to talk about your daughter and dating. Okay, go. And they'll spend an hour of us having dialogue about me and how I feel about my daughter dating. Or, you know. How, by the way, how, son- <laughs> how do you feel about your daughter dating, by the way? <laughs> it's funny. What's funny is that they grow up so fast. And before you know it, they're not, not only do they have they already dated, but you know they got boyfriends and girlfriends that you don't even know about, and, and um, you know you know they don't they don't especially when it comes to a daughter, she doesn't always share things with the dad, but she's sharing things with mom that like I had no idea that she was doing this or having you know she she had a a, a friend that was her boyfriend until my mom you know Holly tells me. So it's difficult with a daughter, whereas, the, whereas the, my boys, even with my 15-year-old, it was like, hey, I like this girl. What do you think I should say to her? Or, you know, how do I, I, how do I approach her? So it's kind of cool in that respect. But it's a whole different dynamic than, than when I was growing up, man. So, but it brings me back, keeps me young, so it's a lot of fun to deal with it. Well, I mean, it really does feel so much like an offering. You know, you guys have something for so many people uh, to relate to, you, you mentioned the son with autism, ADHD, TV shows, both of you and your wife in the public eye, uh, the charity work. So your hands are in so many different places. It, I mean, is it ever overwhelming? It can be. It does. It, it, it can be very overwhelming. And we try to make it a point. And I'm usually usually the one that's got to slow my wife down because she's 100 miles an hour. I don't know how she does it. Hmm. But she's 100 miles an hour, and somebody asks her to come speak at a, a charity event or can you speak to this family group on autism or special needs or ADHD or whatever it may be, she doesn't hesitate to say, yeah, I want to speak because 
because it's worked for us and we, we feel our passion about what's worked for our son and see him thriving, that we want to share that with other families. And I'm the same way too, but I know how to say no. And sometimes I got to figure out how to keep her from saying no and just, and just, you know, stay home from time to time. But it, it creates a very busy family life. But at the same time, it's so rewarding to be able to give back to the families and give them hope that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And at this point, that's what we're all about. And, and the, the beauty of it, Mark, is that our whole family is all in on giving back. You know, with our foundation that we started before the kids were born, um, it's been our, our, you know, we got four kids, but it's been our fifth child. And so they've been involved from day one. So they understand the process of giving back and giving. And so they're very involved and they're all, always constantly asking, how do I become more involved and what can I do? And, uh, and, and as a parent, that's what you want to see. Uh, you left the NFL in 04, and at that time, if I've got my math right, you already had three kids and you were about to have another. Um, what what was that transition like? I've all, I'm always fascinated by the transition from the life of a professional athlete where so much is done for you guys and there's there, you know, there's there's so many things that are that are on your plate so that you can focus solely on your sport. And then you got to transition into just you know, family guy at home, that, that can't be easy. No, it's not. It really isn't. Um, that's a, it's a, it's a tough transition. I don't care what you, uh, anybody that says it's easy, it's not. Um, but because like you said, you know, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a family, you know, as, as, as we speak, when you're talking about being a part of the team. So anything that, that ails you, you can just run to the training room. They take care of everything for you. Um, so when you retire, you know, you got to make sure you're, you know, all the insurance is right. You got to figure out the right doctors to go to for you and the kids. Um, you can't just run to the treat, you know, the training room and get treatment. Um, so it's a difficult transition. And as much as, and I tell, you know, a lot of players, you know, nowadays that I, that I come in contact with that are on the verge of retiring or at the middle or end of their career, um, to, to, to try to really as much as they can try to make plans before before they retire because it is a difficult one and the, and don't think that you can expect the same kind of level of high and experience and excitement and exhilaration as you had playing um, in your in your post career because no matter what you do whether it's you know you go into broadcasting and you're you're around the sport as much as you can or you're a stockbroker, your insurance salesman, or whatever it may be, nothing's going to match that high of you playing. And if you try to kind of go chase that, then you're going to be in trouble. And it's hard not to do because we all do it. We all want to find that high. We all want to find that, that same thing that got us going and motivated us when we're playing. But you can't do that. you got to move on. And it was tough for me um, to do that. And it was tough for a lot of people. And I had relatively easy role when I was when I retired because I I was able to go on to uh, work for Fox and work on a show called Best Damn Sports Show right after I retired you know and you know thinking that that was that was going to fill that void of playing football and it really didn't and so even though it was a great gig and I enjoyed it um, I was still searching for for other things to 
to kind of fulfill me, man. And it took them, it took a minute for me to put away that I'm not going to find the same football high, uh, you know, doing something else. And I got to just realize that this is a different, you know, at 38 years old, I've got to transition into something that's different that I'm going to get the same kind of joy that I get from playing football. Did that lead to any struggles? I mean, I, you, you know, you, what, what yeah. you're, yeah, what you're describing there—that's the way people describe. Like, oh, you know, I, I went down this dark road because I was searching. Did Did you ever have moments like that? Oh, Mark, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you, yeah, I did. And to be candid with you, yeah, I became, um, you know, searching and later on my and in, in my career, like when my son was diagnosed with autism, you know, I was. I was in my 13th year, so I was later in my career and um, didn't want to come home. I started drinking too much. And even after I, I, I retired, I started drinking too much. Um, and we always, always hear the stories of, you know, painkillers and what got you through. And you can, you know, go get whatever you wanted from the, from the training room and the staff. And so those things I started to lean on and, it took a friend of mine, a good friend of mine named Chris Hale, um, who I grew up with and, and uh, well, didn't grow up with, but went to college with. Yep. That is my guy that can always look me in the eye and say, man, you're, you're messing up right now. You got to change this, some, some stuff that's going on. Um, so, I, you know, I, I it a lot to him. But, yeah, it's easy to fall in that trap, and I did. I mean, drinking was one of the things that I fell back to that, that – uh, that I thought there was a crutch to get me through and, and, uh, you know, had to come to some real situations to, uh, to, to overcome that. And as well as, you know, the ailments that you feel from playing for so long and getting bumped and bruised and getting all things taken care of for you. And then you retire, you still have those, those pains and those ailments and those knee joints and that bone on bone and all those things. So you're, you know, you get the painkillers and you, you know, you combat that with the, with the alcohol. It's just a bad situation. So I fell into that trap as well. And thank God I was able to come out on the other side and realize that that was not the way to go and, and went to the, the healthy route and started eating right and losing a lot of weight. And uh, it really helped me, but yeah, it's an easy trap to fall into because that's what you, that's what you have when you're playing. Continuing with Rodney Pete on ballers with babies. All right, what what makes a good marriage? Because I, I, you know this from the outside looking in. You you two look like you got it all figured out, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> we don't. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that we don't, because we have we have our share of arguments and fights and disagreements, and you know the one thing I think that we we realize and, and really came to grips with early on is that we are in this for the long haul. Right. So it wasn't about, you know, it's, it's the commitment. She has a commitment to her craft. I had a commitment to my craft just from a professional standpoint. And we committed to each other in the same vein. So if things were bad or things were looking like she didn't, you know, she didn't like where it was going with our relationship or I didn't like the way it was going with our relationship. It wasn't the easy way out where a lot of people, you know, feel like, oh, let's just let's just separate or let's get a divorce instead of working it out. Counseling was a big part of it. And she she convinced me to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's not something that men in general 
want to do yeah. is go to counseling. And we did that actually before we got married. So we knew what the expectations were before we got married. And so that was a big help for us and for me to understand going in that this is what the commitment was about. And then as we, you know, had our bumps in the roads and we've been married for 23 years, you know, we would fall back on the counseling, but, but we also felt, you know, would fall back on some of the values that, you know, during those sessions and counseling sessions before we got married, what we wanted to do and what we wanted to accomplish being a couple and, and raising a family. So it's not easy, but we don't run away from problems. We have problems like anybody else, and we have major ones that we deal with, and we've had some knockdown, drag-out fights, hmm. but nobody's going anywhere. You know what I mean? Nobody's going anywhere. We figure out a way to work it out. And the best way to work it out from our standpoint has always been to incorporate a third party to really see both sides of the story. And counseling has really helped us. Yeah, and I, I, I can only imagine the uh, the pressure and, and thoughts and, and fears and insecurities that gets put on a family when you do uh, have a child that's going through something. And you've mentioned a couple of times now your son, who's now 20, uh, who, who's autistic, but but you also said he got a job with the Dodgers. How, I mean, how is that all working? What is what is adult life like for him? Oh my God, Mark, it's um, it's been a game changer. It's it's really been a game changer because he has gotten, you know, one of the things that you, as the kids get older, you want them to have the the right self esteem and and really have confidence in themselves to be able to do whatever they want to do. And the Dodgers have given him that opportunity. Um, you know, early on when he was diagnosed at three years old, it was about getting them in the right schools, getting them the right therapist, getting them to understand, you know, how to read, how to communicate, how to look people in the eye. Um, but he's gotten older, and then he got to be, you know, 17, 18 years old. And we're like, you know, college is not for everyone. It certainly wasn't for him. But how do we, how do we get him a job? How do we get how do we get com- companies and corporations to hire kids with special needs and just not look past them? And thank God we had some friends, you know, at the Dodgers that that knew our story and knew who he was. Didn't necessarily know him, but knew who he was. And we went to them and said, "Look, you know, we're we're talking to the, a bunch of different companies about trying to hire our son. What do you guys think? Can he fit in here?" And they jumped in with both feet and said, bring him on. Hmm. And so Dodgers have been a lifesaver for us. And, and the, the great part about that, Mark, is that the Dodgers have been catalysts, not only for our son, but because of our son, they have actually embraced it, spoke to other organizations, and other organizations are hiring kids with special needs to be a part of their clubhouse. Because what it's done for him, look, we had to get him up every day for school when he was in you know, elementary, middle school, high school, we had to get him up and drag him out of bed to go because he wasn't motivated about it. We don't have to get him up at all. He, he's got a sense of purpose. He's never late for work. He works extra. They love him over there. He's got a family. The players embrace him as if he's one of their own. And his self-esteem has gone through the roof. And he, he's driving. I mean, he drives to work every single day. And it, it has been so amazing what a job has done for this kid. Mm, gosh, that's an amazing story. Um, and, you know, one of the other pressures that uh, that I certainly wanted to, to, to touch on with you 
you know, I thought this was really courageous. You allowed the cameras to follow your journey as a former football player into finding out about your brain and, yeah. and potential CTE. And I wonder not only where does that sit right now, but how have you had conversations about that with your family, not knowing where this is going in the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough deal. And you're right. I did, uh, allow the cameras in there and, um, you know, what they found was not, it was not all good. You know what I mean? So there were, you know, as a lot of guys that have played contact sports, there were some lesions on my brain. And so, um, there's not a whole lot you can do other than, you know, a lot of diet and treating it right and staying on top of it. Um, but brain health is, is, is extremely important. Um, and so I've been able to change my diet. I've been able to, to, to lose a lot of weight um, and, and trying to do certain things to, to, to kind of keep me right. But I stay on top of my neurological symptoms and neurological, you know, uh, health as much as I do with my other physical health. Um, but dealing with that with the family, um, it's, it's a tough deal because you see the horror stories of, of different players that, that really don't deal with it. And then all of a sudden you see them at 50 or 60 or 55 or whenever, then, you know, they're going through dementia or they're going through Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or things like that. Not, not necessarily saying that that is a direct result, but if, things go untreated if things go undiagnosed then the worst things can happen so the early you know the better and we you know and i think i thank my son in the holly for for doing that with my son getting him early diagnosed and not really taking any chances mm. because i did that same thing with me uh when i when i uh you know had my brain checked out um there's some things that uh that are scary but if you if you listen to it and understand it and get ahead of it there there are ways to live a, a very quality life and and so that's what we're all about is is really promoting the quality of life going forward man so it's a tough deal it's a sport that i loved and i played and i would if i had to do it all over again i'd do it again i really would um and i know people don't want to hear that given all the all the data that we have but i really would because it gave me so much and um you know, it's hard to say that I wouldn't do it, you know. Um, and then, and thank God, you know, I, I tell Holly and tell my friends all the time that my, my younger kids chose basketball and baseball. Had they chose football, it would have been a difficult decision for me because of what it did for me. Um, but I am, uh, I'm thankful that, that my wife has been very aggressive in terms of pushing me to, to stay on top of my health and my brain and my body and everything. Yeah. You know, here we are in 2018. Rodney, I recently had a friend say, man, I'm glad I'm not growing up in today's world. I, I wonder, what, what do you worry about as a parent in 2018 and how it relates to your kids? Man, I, I worry about the social media aspect of what's going on right now. I worry about the bullying. Um, my son, we talked about, was bullied early on, and thank God he had some warriors around him that didn't allow him to get bullied along the way. And it's a funny story. We had a, Holly and I had a, a, a autism one-on-one uh, when he was in fifth grade at his elementary school. And we let the kids know. We kicked the parents out. We kicked the teachers out. We just talked to the kids. Hmm. And we talked to them about what autism was and that 
you know, it's a, you know, neurological disorder that, you know, sometimes my son, RJ may not look you in the eye. He may not say hello. He might not talk to you, but doesn't mean he doesn't want to be your friend. So sometimes you got to go up to him and, and hold his hand and say, look him in the eye and say, Hey, let's go over here and play. Let's go play some basketball. Let's go play kickball. Because even if he's standoffish, he may not say it to you, but doesn't mean he doesn't want to participate. And that did wonders for our kids. So, you know, he is, um, he's got an embrace, you know, friendship of, of a number of different people to this day, which is great for us. And we we're thankful for that. But I, yeah, I do. I worry about even my younger kids, especially uh, being influenced by social media and bullying online because people can do it behind closed doors and it's, it's a town without a sheriff, you know what I mean? And they can, they can manipulate you to do whatever they want to do. They can get you to go places you don't want to go. And sometimes it's not people their age. It's people that are in their 30s and 40s and 50s that can influence kids to go do something that they don't want to do because it's online and you don't see that person. And so that is a scary part as a parent. And on top of that, you kind of remember the things that you did when you were 15, 16 years old <laughs> that you got away with that, that your parents didn't know. And you're like, man, I dodged that bullet. I dodged that bullet, man. Yep. And then you, when you have kids, you're like, oh, God, I just remember all the bullets I dodged. Are they going to be in the same situation? So you just want to have the open dialogue with them, open communication with them that they can share without consequences, share everything that's going on, and hope that they do and so we try to do that and try to have an open dialogue without judging them, without punishment or anything like that. Because the one thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that they're open with you and communicate with you, good or bad. Like I told my kids, look, you're going to go out, you're going to go to parties, you're going to have, you know, you're going to drink, you're going to do whatever you may do. But if you need a ride home, call me. Thank God for Uber now. Yeah, right. they, all have, they all have their Uber account, so they can do that. <laughs> right. But if you get in trouble, you can always call me. And without judgment, I'll come pick you up. I'll do whatever I need to do. Um, and you're always good. You're always good. You always got a place here and without judgment. So that's where the thing. I think some parents are sometimes are so close-minded that they think their, their kids are all saints and they don't want them to do this and they point their finger. Well, when you start doing that, then kids do the opposite. Because I was a kid. We all were kids at one point, and we know how that goes. All right, home stretch with Rodney Pete. We're going to stick to sports. Rodney, I got to ask you this. I've been waiting to ask any one of you guys, you former USC QBs, how offensive is this whole <laughs> USC quarterbacks never work in the NFL thing? Yeah. Like, 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 how much do you take that to heart? Man, you know, it's so funny um, because, I, you know, when you think about it, because it comes up every year. It comes up with a different – because USC has been a, such a, a good program over the years, especially – in the last 15 years, especially with quarterbacks, you think about, oh, quarterbacks in the NFL, it doesn't, you know, SC quarterbacks have not really panned out. You know, maybe Carson Palmer is the only one, blah, blah, blah. But I always pose the questions like, what school really does have a lock on quarterbacks? Mm -hmm. What school does? You know what I mean? What school has a lock? I mean, you can't, can you say Stanford? I don't know. Can you say Michigan? Because, you know, Tom Brady's there. But what other Michigan quarterbacks? You know, Harbaugh, you know, he had a pretty good career. He's okay, but nothing like Brady. But what other school is really unlocked? You got Alabama, who's got, you know, multiple national titles with, with quarterbacks that have went through there and played multiple years. 
but what Alabama quarterback has really thrived in the NFL? You know, and then you go to the running backs at Alabama. What Alabama running backs have thrived? So it's a crapshoot when it comes to how do you, you know, what, what happens in the NFL because it's so determined on where you go. It's so determined on what system you're in. And if you don't go to the right system and the right situation, it's hard for anyone to succeed. That's why I was like, <laughs> I like wiped my brow and, and said, thank you, Cleveland, for not drafting Sam Darnold. Because I think he's got a, <laughs> he's got a better chance to succeed at the Jets than he does at Cleveland. I really do. Well, that was going to be my next question. What do you think yeah. about that that particular fit, Sam Darnold to the yeah. Jets? I, I think that it's going to be right. I think they got the defense almost there, you know, where he's he's going to be a, in a situation where um, the defense is going to keep him in games. And he's got a great guy in McCown to kind of learn from. He's the, he's a great veteran quarterback to be there. Um uh, to kind of teach the young guy the ropes. He really is. He's a good kid. I know him. Um, he's been around and been in multiple situations for years. Um, and he doesn't have a, a you know an ego, so he understands that Sam Darnold is the quarterback of the future, so he's going he's gonna to lend his support. I had that for me when I started in Detroit with a guy named Bob Galliano and Eric Hipple. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a great situation for him that he doesn't have to come in there right away and become the savior. I know the Jets fans are thinking he's going to be that. Um, but the defense, Todd Bowles has got the defense ready to go. I think it's a better situation for him to be at than, than going to the Browns. Same thing with the kid from UCLA. You know, I know he bitched about being drafted later and all that kind of stuff. But if he could pick a team that drafts him, the Arizona Cardinals, of all the quarterbacks that have gone different places, he's in the best situation. He's in the situation where they can win now, and he's got the talent around him to win now. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I get the, I get defensive about the the SC quarterback thing because I go back to the question of like, what what school has a lock? Yeah, what school really has a lock on quarterback? I mean, there's linebacker U, there's always you know there's DBs, you know Florida State is now calling themselves you know DBU. They got a lot of defensive backs that are out there. But what school really has a lock on quarterbacks because they come from everywhere? By the way, you mentioned Josh Rosen bitching about where he ended up. I mean, I wonder, what what's the right way for a quarterback to enter the league in terms of attitude? You know, Baker's flashy. There's Josh, whatever you want to call him, talkative. Some would say entitled. Sam doesn't say much. Josh Allen doesn't either, except for he's got racist tweets in his background. Like, what, what's the – is there a right way and what is it? It's, res- it's, respect, it's respect for the veterans. That is the biggest thing that you can do, is respect the people that have been there and done that. Um, you know, and, and, and I was very offended, and I said this on my radio show about, you know, how it's the wrong way to go about it when, when Josh Rosen made that comment about nine mistakes before him and all that kind of stuff. Well, He's taking a shot at the other teams, and he's taking a shot at the other his peers. Yep. He's basically saying, you know, that the Browns, the Jets, the Bills, all made a mistake, and not only the Bills, but everybody else made a mistake on their players that they took. You know, so Sam Darnold's not going to pan out, and Baker Mayfield's not going to pan out, and Josh Allen's not going to pan out. Um, so he took a shot at them instead of saying, "Look, I'm going to make sure that I." 
I, every time we play them, I'm going to beat those guys. That would have been a better comment. But to say that they made mistakes on the guys that they drafted is taking a shot at the guys that they drafted. Um, so it's, it's, it's just not a, not a good look. But you got to come in a little bit humble um, because you're coming into a league where guys have been there for six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve years, and to come in cocky from college when you have no idea, you really don't. You can prepare and be the greatest player in the world. You have no idea the difference between the college game and the pro game. So be as humble as you can and try to learn as much as you can because if not, you, 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 you not only already because you were drafted in the first round have a bullseye, but now you have a real target on your back if you make some comments like he did. I'll let you wrap with this. Uh, is football going to be okay? You know what? I, I think so. I think they're making the right moves and, and teaching young kids how to play the game, how to tackle, um, not leading with your head. Uh, you know, there's, there's still a ways to go in terms of the honesty and the integrity of, you know, former players and acknowledging that there was a problem before. They've got some ways to go and acknowledging that. I know it's, you know, from a legal standpoint, they're a little scared to, to say that. But I think from a, it's trickling down to the high school and, and Pop Warner level that teaching guys different ways to tackle um, is, is changing. Um, and we see it, you know, a little bit on the coast where it's diminished a little bit because soccer's taken over and other sports are taking over. But in middle America and Texas and Oklahoma and Ohio and, you know, some of the big football states, even Florida, football is not diminished at all, and it won't. But I think it's going in the right direction as, as long as the NFL continues to lead the charge. And, and, but the biggest thing they have to do is acknowledge those guys that played in the 70s and the 60s and the 80s that we didn't do enough for these guys. We didn't protect them enough, and we need to protect them now. And so guys are out there that are struggling. The NFL needs to step up and say, whatever it takes to protect these guys that did, that played this game and didn't have the support or didn't, have, didn't get the support and are not getting the support in which they need right now. Rodney, thank you so, so much for doing this. Fantastic stuff and, uh, and great to it. chat with you, man. You got it, Mark. Take care, buddy. 